We do need the Lord, and he speaks to us through his word. If you would stand with me and take your Bible, and if you need a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. The Bible is God speaking to us. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through verses 8 through 24, page 659, if you're using the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? But, it has, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who, is call, who, he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that calling in which he was called. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come having just been overwhelmed and, and humbled by the ability to draw near to you, to praise you, to actually stand and listen to you speak to us. And Lord, we desire to learn from this passage the gospel difference that you can make in our marriages, but not just our marriages, our, our divorces, our our singleness, our, our callings, whatever those are, wherever we're at, you have something to say to us this morning, to the seeker that's skeptical, 
to the person who has walked long with you and is a servant of you, you have something to say to all of us today. And Lord, we as a people offer ourselves up to listen and to not just listen, but to be doers of the word. And so, Father, we pray that you would use our pastor and you would use your word and your spirit to accomplish in us that which would bring greater fame to your name, that which would enable more people outside of your grace to be welcomed into it. Lord, give us hearts that are eager to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue in our series on God's design for sex, marriage, and singleness, perhaps in light of today's topic, we should begin with a little humor, for this may be the only time we laugh today. A husband and wife are getting ready for bed, and the wife is standing in front of a full-length mirror, taking a hard look at herself. You know, dear, she says, I look in the mirror and I see an old woman. My face is all wrinkled. Everything else is either sagging or bloated. I've got fat legs and my arms are all flabby. And she turns to her husband of 50 plus years and says, tell me something positive to make me feel better about myself. And he studies hard for a moment, thinking about it, and then he says in a soft, thoughtful voice, well, there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. <laughs> Funeral services for the husband will be held next Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. Female friends of the family are invited. As you are all aware, the reality is there are no perfect marriages. But there's another more powerful reality that we as Christ followers need to embrace. And that is God can redeem your marriage through the power of the gospel. And that makes all the difference in our lives and in our marriages. So I begin with this foundational truth. Notice it on your screen and in your notes. You can pull the insert out. It's a foundational truth that we must embrace as Christ followers. And that is the gospel is what makes the difference in our lives and marriages. If you don't believe that, if you don't embrace that, there is not much hope. But if you will embrace this truth, if you will live out this truth, there is always hope. Now, we need to remember the context in which Paul is writing these verses here in 1 Corinthians 7. Remember, Paul is writing to Christ followers. In particular, they are new believers in Jesus Christ at this church in Corinth who have been redeemed by this gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us that some of these Christ followers were adulterers. They were sexually promiscuous. They were even homosexuals. And he says that 
That was your past before the gospel intervened, before God opened your heart, before God did a radical work in your life and saved you. That was your former life before Christ. And he writes then in verse 11, this is in chapter 6, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And what a marvelous statement is that. We can all identify with that. We want to embrace that. These Christ followers had been redeemed by the grace of God. They were new people with new hearts whose lives had been radically transformed by the gospel. And these Christ followers, though, make no mistake about it, they were scarred and they were wounded by their sins. Their lives and their relationships were messy. But the gospel made the difference in their lives. And now it was beginning to make a difference in their marriages as well. These Corinthian Christ followers, though, they wanted to glorify God in their marriages, but they were kind of twisted, and they didn't know how to do that. They weren't getting this right. And Paul now writes to them, and he's answering some questions that the church leaders at Corinth wrote back to Paul. And he begins to address this very issue. And so Paul gives them some important guidance about marriage and divorce that is based on not what the culture says, but is based on what the gospel does for us. Now let me say up front that Paul doesn't answer every question that you or I may have about marriage and divorce here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But what Paul does say in these verses is quite challenging. Now the challenge doesn't come from the text. The challenge comes from us. Because if we're honest, we don't always like what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. And this is an issue where our culture's views and God's views often collide and clash. And certainly, when we ourselves are dealing with a difficult marriage, the struggle to do what God says in his word, instead of what we want to do, is more pronounced. Nevertheless, we must, as Christ followers, embrace what God says about marriage and divorce. And as Christ followers who have been redeemed by this wonderful, glorious gospel, we must be willing to submit to God's will for our lives in marriages, even when it clashes with the views of our culture in which we live today. Why? Because the gospel really does make a difference. Do you believe that? Will you embrace that? Will you lean into that with your life and with your marriage? And so with this gospel banner hanging over us, let's open our hearts now. Let's open our minds to the word of God when it deals with this issue here. Number one, the gospel makes the difference in my life. The key, listen to me, the whole key to understanding what Paul says about singleness, what he says about marriage, and what he says about divorce in verses 8 through 16 is understanding what Paul says about our lives 
in verses 17 through 24. And for that reason, we're going to take this backwards. We're going to look at those verses first, then come back to verses 8 through 16. Paul says in verse 17, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Walk in what? Let him. Who's that referred to? Remember, he's writing to Christ followers. He's writing to believers who have been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, let him, let us, that is believers in Jesus Christ who have been called by God to salvation. That's the calling. That's what it's referring to. You've been called by God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning. Let us now, he says, walk in the power of this gospel that's making a difference. And let us walk in that power in whatever situation you were in right now. Because the gospel makes a difference in that situation. In those circumstances. Paul is writing to Christians, again, who have been redeemed by the gospel. And some of them were not just reacting for the sake of the gospel, but they're now overreacting in regard to the implications of the gospel in their lives. In other words, in seeking to glorify God with their lives, with their bodies, some of these new Christians thought they needed to walk away in their marriages, walk away in their vocations, walk away in their friendships. They were overreacting. Their view of the gospel and the difference it makes was distorted. It was twisted. And Paul's now writing to them, and he's correcting their thinking and their view. And he knows this. And so he decides to shift their paradigm by telling them that being redeemed by the gospel about, is about walking with Jesus where they are right now in life. No matter what the circumstances may be. Here's why. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. The reason is, is because of the difference the gospel makes. The gospel, notice this, always makes radical changes in our lives. And to that we say what? Oh, that was pathetic. The gospel always makes radical changes in our lives. And to that we say what? Amen. But notice this. It doesn't always make radical changes in our circumstances. Now, Paul unpacks that truth in verses 17 through 24. And so because the gospel makes a difference in my life, here's what he says. Here's a general rule. Here's a general principle that we need to apply. And that is remain. Remain in the same situation you were in when you were saved. Don't seek to change it right away. This is the starting place for every Christ follower. And in verse 17, Paul says that this general rule is what he ordains or what he directs for all Christ followers in all the churches. Now this is Paul's general guideline again. That is remain. Remain, remain, remain in the same situation you were in when you were saved. Don't seek to change your circumstances, which is what we are always prone to do. Remain. Don't seek to change them. 
unless you're in an immoral situation. And in that case, Paul says, flee. Get out as fast as you can. But this principle, this overarching principle to remain is the key. It's repeated in this passage over and over and over again. And it becomes the key principle then when Paul earlier talks about singleness and marriage. Paul states this principle again in verse 20. Look at it. He says, let each one what? What does it say? Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. And again, you drop down to verse 24. He says, brethren, let each one what? remain with God in that calling in which he was called. And then Paul gives in between this a couple of examples in order to help his listeners understand exactly what he's talking about. Paul starts with this racial and religious status when he says in verse 18, was anyone called while circumcised? Then let him not become uncircumcised. I'm not quite sure how that works. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Now circumcision in that day and age, you have to understand, was a, a racial identification as well as a sign of the Jewish religious system. And Paul is basically saying to them, if you were Jewish or Gentile when you were saved, don't try to change that. Being a Christian, being a Christ follower isn't connected to being a Jew or a Gentile. And Paul's second illustration has to do with a social status in verse 21 where he says, were you called while a slave? Or some of your Bible translations may say a bond servant. And he says, do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. Go ahead, get your freedom. Now, being a slave or a bond servant was not an ideal situation in Paul's day. Paul doesn't even say that it was. Otherwise, he would have never said, if you can gain your freedom, gain it. He acknowledges that's not an ideal situation. But neither was it detrimental to following Jesus. One could be a Christ follower and a bondservant of Christ at the same time. Time. In other words, Paul is saying that your social status, your social standing in this world is irrelevant to being a Christian and following Jesus Christ. Now we could add to this our own modern day example of even a job status, income stream status. Sometimes we look at our job situation and we think, man, this is less than ideal. My working conditions are not that conducive for my spiritual growth. I hear foul language. I see employees doing unethical things. And the temptation then is to say, man, I've got to get out of this. I've got to change this. I've got, if I'm going to live for Christ and advance the gospel, I've got to find a different job. I've got to change my circumstances. And Paul says, time out here. That's an overreaction with regard to the gospel. Remember, the general rule is to what? Remain. Remain in the same situation you were in when you were saved. Don't necessarily seek to change it all at once or immediately. And Paul applies this same principle, as we're going to see, he applies it to singleness and to marriage. But it's all based on something. This principle to remain is based on, notice number two, God's character. 
God is sovereign. And God is faithful in your current situation. This is the thing we've got to get a hold of. This is the thing we've got to wrap our minds around if we're going to embrace God's truth for our lives and marriages. Because some of you are asking about right now, man, how in the world can Paul say this? He doesn't know my situation. He doesn't know my marriage. How can Paul say remain? How can he say hang in there, hang in your current situation? How can he just say as a general rule to remain in the same situation you were in when you were saved? And Paul said this because of the very character of our God. God is sovereign and he is faithful in the midst of your current situation in life and marriage you see this in verse 17 when Paul says but as God has distributed to each one so let him walk that word distributed is also translated as a sign it's the idea of dividing up and distributing out in the same way that God does spiritual gifts. And Paul says God does the same thing when it comes to your situation or status in life. God is sovereign in it. He's over it. This means your current situation or your status in life is not a surprise to God. God is not caught off guard by the circumstances of your life, including your marital status. God is sovereign over your situation, but also know that he is faithful in your current situation. We see this in verse 24 when Paul writes, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that calling in which he was called. Do you see it? Paul says, with God. Paul says, whatever situation you're in, whatever status you're in, Remain there with God. He's right there with you. God is not absent. He hasn't taken a vacation from your situation. Remain there with God. He's sovereign over it, and he's faithful in it. And then Paul gives us some gospel focuses, some challenges, you will, that are related to the gospel. Number three, notice this here. He says to Remember grace, pursue holiness, and reject entitlement. Look what Paul says in verse 19. He says, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Now, that's radical statement if you were a Jew back in Paul's day. That was radical. He's just turning their world upside down. But the keeping, the commandment of God is what matters. Now, what Paul means, we, if we can couch it this way, he's saying that we're not saved through circumstances. In other words, we're not saved through works of the flesh. We are saved, how? By grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith. And guess what? That doesn't change when you get saved and start following Jesus Christ. It's still by grace so don't think you need to change your situation or status in order to live the Christian life. Paul says, here's what matters. 
keeping the commandments of God. What's important is, is another way to say it, is what's important here is pursuing holiness. Pursuing purity. Pursuing living for Jesus Christ. And Paul has already told us how in chapter 6, in the context of this whole passage here, he says one way is to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God with our bodies. And we'll see in a moment God's commands when it comes to marriage. And the question is, will we keep God's commands when it comes to that? Now don't miss the last gospel focus. Remember grace, you're saved by grace, not by your works. Pursue obedience, pursue holiness, but also reject entitlement. You say, where do you see that? Oh, notice verses 22 and 23. Paul writes, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. Once again, Paul is reminding us something, a phenomenal truth, that we were bought at a price. Second time he's now reminding us this. Therefore, the implication is we belong to who? Jesus Christ. And we are here to serve Christ. So don't spend your life fighting for rights that you're not entitled to because you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul knows this is the temptation. The temptation is to think that now that I've become a Christian, now that I've given my life to Christ and, and I'm a, a Christ follower, that I'm now entitled to a better deal in my life. a better deal in social status, a better deal in job status, and even a better deal in marital status. And the reason we think this is because we have embraced what our culture says. I deserve to be happy. And it's my right to change my situation in the pursuit of a happy life. That's my right. And who are you to tell me differently? That's our culture's view. And Satan has used this entitlement mentality to sabotage many Christian marriages in which the spouses declare our marriage is hell on earth, it's miserable, and we deserve to be happy. So we're calling it quits and we're going our separate ways. And Paul says, time out, stop. Remember, you're not entitled to anything. You were bought at a price. You're a servant of Jesus Christ. Remember the grace in your life. Remember what you once were and what Christ has intervened. Pursue obedience and reject the culture mentality of entitlement because the gospel makes a difference in our lives. That's why. That's what Paul's getting at here. And now let's take those gospel truths and let's see how Paul applies them to marriage. Number two, the gospel makes the difference not only in my life, but in my marriage. In fact, we could say it this way. Because the gospel makes a difference in my life, it therefore makes a difference in our marriages. Now, this is where the Christians in Corinth were confused. 
And when you think about it, the confusion hasn't gone away among many Christians today. And in regard to what the gospel demands in marriage. And specifically here in this passage, Paul deals with three situations. So you kind of got three situations, if you want to think about it, one, two, or three. Three groups of people, if you will. And he gives instructions that are come from God. They're God-inspired. Paul's instructions to three groups of people or three situations. The gospel difference in my marital status. He addresses the first group, and that is Christians formerly married. Christians who are formerly married, and here's the principle. Here's what he says to us. Remain unmarried purposefully. Now go back to verse 8 and look at it. See it. Paul's writing here, and he says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. So Paul is addressing, it appears, two groups of people within this group. He's addressing the unmarried and the widows. Now, we understand widows are women who have lost their husbands in death. But who are the unmarried here? Who's he talking about? It's possible it refers to those who have never been married. However, most Bible scholars agree it probably refers to widowers. That is, men who have lost their wives due to death. It may even include those who have been divorced. So Paul is not necessarily giving instructions here to singles who have never been married. We'll get to that next Sunday. He'll do that later, but for now, Paul is addressing those who are formerly married due to the death of a spouse or possibly even divorce. And Paul says to this group of people who have been formerly married, he says, it is good to remain unmarried even as I am. And the reason Paul says this is not because he's anti-marriage. It's not because he's against marriage, but because he realizes that those who aren't married have more freedom to serve the Lord and advance the gospel. And we'll, he delves into all of that background next Sunday. We'll look at it. And since Paul even includes himself in this category, he seems to apply that he himself was once married, but is now either widowed, his wife has passed away, or perhaps his wife has walked away from him because he was converted to Jesus Christ. And she was like, I'm not staying in this marriage. In light of this, let me encourage you who are here this morning who fit into this. You are formerly married. And that is to use your season of singleness for greater devotion to the Lord and greater service in the church. Paul is saying to us, don't check out. Don't throw in the towel and think life is over. Singleness is not a punishment from God, nor is it a prison sentence to endure. Reject the temptation of entitlement. Don't think I'm entitled to be married. I deserve a better deal than what God has assigned me at this moment in my life. Instead, 
realize God has given you a new assignment with new opportunities for ministry. See it as the sovereign hand of God in your life and know that God is faithful in your circumstances of singleness to be right there with you. But while Paul believes it's best for Christians who are formerly married to remain unmarried, he realizes that remarriage may be a better option for some. Not everyone is called and gifted for singleness. For some, the fight for sexual purity is overwhelmingly difficult. And so Paul says in verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so here we can summarize it. Here's the bottom line. Notice this in your notes. If you're a Christian formerly married, know that your season of singleness right now is God's will for you as long as you can exercise self-control. And again, notice that Paul takes this issue of our sexual desire, which is God-given, and sexual purity, and he takes it seriously. Paul recognizes the power of sexual desire, and he takes it into account by saying it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And as we learned last Sunday, this is not the only reason to get married. It's not even at the top of the list. But marriage, as we learned last Sunday, is God's provision in which to satisfy our God-given sexual desires. So regardless of whether you're single, single again, or married here this morning, understand something. All of us here, teens all the way to 80-year-olds, all of us here are called by God to pursue sexual purity in our lives. The second situation Paul addresses is now Christians married to Christians. And Paul's instructions to us is to remain married permanently. Paul gives a very straightforward command to Christians who are married to Christians. And again, it is remain married permanently. Don't seek a divorce. Paul says in verse 10, look at it. Now to the married, I command... Yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Now notice this command is from Jesus himself, who spoke about the permanence of marriage in the Gospels. And what Paul's doing is he's repeating this command of Jesus. He's now referencing it. Neither spouse is to abandon their marriage. On your wedding day, you stand before family and friends and you recite those famous vows, pledging your love for better or for worse. For better or for worse. And in essence, on the most romantic day of your life, you're saying to the person you look in the eyes to, this could go bad. But at the same time, you are also promising to not go anywhere if it does. Why? Because marriage is a covenant promise before God Almighty 
that he sanctions as opposed to a contractual agreement that is dependent on one party's happiness. Scripture is abundantly clear here. God's design for marriage is a lifelong union of a man and a woman. Divorce is not part of God's will for our lives. Divorce is fundamentally opposed to God's design for marriage. And for this reason, we are told in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, that God, listen to this, hates divorce. God hates the causes of divorce, and he hates the consequences of divorce. And we must realize that divorce is always a result of sin. And divorce is almost always sinful. I say almost because there are narrow circumstances. In Matthew 19 and here in 1 Corinthians 7, in which God does allow divorce. And in such situations, divorce is not necessarily sinful. The one situation in which God allows for divorce among believers is when a spouse commits adultery. And even then, even then, adultery doesn't require divorce, it just permits it. And so even though divorce is sometimes permissible, it is never, never, never desirable, nor does it have to be inevitable. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that reconciliation is always, get this, always possible. Paul gives further instruction then regarding what is expected if a Christian spouse gets a divorce that is not biblically permissible or justifiable. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, that is just as true for the husband as it is for the wife. And Paul's instructions are clear. If you divorce, either you should be reconciled to your spouse or you should remain unmarried. And the reason Paul doesn't allow for remarriage isn't spelled out by him here. But it was by Jesus in Matthew 19, 9. Listen to what Jesus says. Anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality or adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. Maybe you're wondering, well, what about separation? Listen, separation is never an ideal situation. But because of sin, it is sometimes a real and necessary alternative to divorce. But even then, there are two kinds of separation. One that works towards repentant reconciliation, and one that is simply a speed bump to divorce. Separation is not a time to plan an exit strategy. It's not a time to explore other possibilities or think of excuses to quit. Separation is for the purpose of working towards reconciliation with your spouse and restoration of the marriage. And Paul reminds us again why in verse 39 at the very end of the chapter here when he says a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And the same is true 
for the husband who dies or the wife who dies. And so we could summarize Paul's instructions here. Notice it. If you're a Christian, married to a Christian, know that your marriage is God's will as long as your spouse is alive. Now, let me pause here. And let me just say, I know full aware, full aware, I am fully aware that this view of marriage and divorce is rejected by our culture. And it's even difficult to accept by Christians. Let's face it, what Paul is saying here is hard. And Paul leaves a lot here unsaid. And I'm sure there are many of you out there right now that have questions going through your mind that Paul is simply not dealing with. Questions like, well, what if you divorce and remarry before salvation? What if there's abuse in your marriage? What if you're in a marriage that is filled with unspeakable heartache and pain? And Paul doesn't answer any of these questions. And the temptation, even now, among us here, even now, the, here's the temptation, is to focus on all the what-ifs when it comes to difficult situations in marriage and divorce. And what we need to do first and foremost is we need to focus on what God says here and let it penetrate our hearts. Let's acknowledge, yes, let's acknowledge the difficulties and questions that are out there. But let's also, listen to me, let's also acknowledge that any difficulties and questions we may have do not invalidate the truth that Paul wants us to embrace. Remain married permanently. And perhaps some of you are still asking, why? Why does God take such a hard line on marriage and divorce? After all, if we've fallen out of love, and if things just aren't working out, why shouldn't we get a divorce? Oftentimes, the clear teaching of Scripture is trumped by the feelings of entitlement. I don't deserve this. My marriage is miserable. I deserve to be happy. And we even tell ourselves, God will understand if I get a divorce. He knows all the junk I've been dealing with over the years. and He couldn't possibly, how could God possibly want me to endure any more suffering in this marriage? You know what? You're right. God does know all about your marriage. And God still says, remain married permanently in your marriage. Even if it's less than ideal, even if it is hell on earth, even with all the baggage and challenges and problems, this is God's will that you pursue obedience and remain married and know full well that God is sovereign and he is faithful in your marriage. And know that the power of the gospel is what makes the difference. So don't abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ in your marriage. 
The third situation Paul addresses is Christians married to unbelievers. And to that group, he says, remain married indefinitely. Paul continues his argument for the permanence of marriage when a believer in Jesus Christ is married to an unbeliever. He says in verses 12 through 13, look at it. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say. In other words, Paul is not repeating something Jesus taught while on earth. But God is still speaking here through Paul by the Holy Spirit. And so notice Paul's instructions in verses 12 and 13. He says, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now, reality check. The reality is, the gospel is powerful. And because of the power of the gospel, get this, that brings tension into a marriage to an unbeliever. Without question, Salvation in one spouse introduces a new kind of tension into the marriage relationship. And immediately, there are two people who have become one flesh through physical union, all of a sudden are now coming from two different completely worldviews with different perspectives and different authorities over their lives. And the Christians in Corinth thought that the solution to resolve, to eliminate this tension in their marriage was to divorce their unbelieving spouses. But Paul clearly states that the believer should not divorce their unbelieving spouse if he or she is willing to stay in the marriage in spite of the tension. He says, remain married indefinitely. Why? Because while, get this, listen to me please, while religious or spiritual incompatibility is certainly a reason not to get married. And if you're single here, you need to think awful hard about marrying anybody who is not compatible with you on a spiritual level. And especially if they're an unbeliever and you're a believer. That is a legitimate reason not to marry that person. But Paul is saying that is not a legitimate married to get divorced. So if you're a Christian married to an unbeliever, here's what you can know based on the authority of God's word. Know that your marriage is God's will as long as your spouse is willing to stay in the marriage. And Paul even gives us a reason for staying married. Remember the same gospel that is powerful, so powerful it brings tension into the marriage? Listen to this. This is, this is cool. Paul says that same gospel, because it makes a difference, he says that gospel brings blessing into a marriage to an unbeliever. 
In Paul's day, part of the wife's fear was that her spiritually mixed marriage would somehow defile her and even her children. And Paul says quite the opposite in verse 14. Notice it. He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. And otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. In other words, the unbelieving spouse and children are sanctified or made holy by the presence of the believing spouse. Paul is telling us, he's reminding us, listen, your marriage to an unbelieving spouse is not immoral. And the children are not illegitimate. They're not tainted. This does not mean, though, that the unbelieving spouse and children are just magically saved through marriage. No, no, no. Again, the Bible teaches that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. But they are sanctified in that they have been set apart by having a gospel witness lived out before them. The Christian spouse's gospel-centered life permeates the marriage and home and has a purifying influence on the family. As John Calvin said, the godliness of the believing spouse does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the unbelieving spouse to make it unclean. So Paul holds out hope that the believing spouse may actually influence the unbelieving spouse to believe in the gospel if that spouse chooses to stay in the marriage. But Paul is also realistic about the possibility of divorce when he says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And so sometimes divorce is out of the Christian spouse's hands, and it's initiated by the unbelieving spouse. And Paul says, if your unbelieving spouse decides he or she wants to divorce you and walk out of the marriage, Paul says, listen, don't fight it. Let it go. And he adds to that, and he says, listen, you are free to allow your unbelieving spouse to divorce you without incurring any shame or guilt on your part. And just to be clear, that means that we have now seen there are two situations in which divorce is biblically permissible. Adultery and abandonment. One biblical ground for divorce between two believers is adultery according to Jesus in Matthew 19. The other biblical ground for divorce between a believer and an unbeliever is abandonment, according to Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7. And under those circumstances, the Bible teaches that divorce is permissible and may be unavoidable. It may be less destructive to dissolve the marriage bond than to try to force it together. After all, Paul says, God has called you to peace. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for our marriage. But it does mean because of the hardness of our hearts and because of our sin, sometimes the path of peace is to permit divorce in situations of adultery and abandonment. But there is hope. And this is where Paul ends with a note of hope. Paul writes in verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And so when you find yourself in a marriage that is painful rather than joyful, when Christ is not shared between you, 
and where tension intrudes upon your unity. You are called to so cling to Christ that your unbelieving spouse will see in you that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is sufficient for you. You are called to so live out the gospel that your unbelieving spouse will be unable to deny its truth and power. And this motivation to remain is not to secure your spouse's salvation, but rather it is to demonstrate your own salvation and the power that the gospel makes in your life, the difference that the gospel makes. Now, I know we've gone way over time. I knew we would. But before we pray and go home, let me leave you with three or four truths here that relates to the gospel. And I'll, let me do it quickly. Number one, if you are single, maximize your singleness to advance the gospel. Paul assures singles that God has given them a gift in their singleness and they are free from the troubles of married life. And so, as long as you are single, Paul says, maximize that gift of singleness for the advancement of God's kingdom. Second, if you are married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. That's the best thing you can ever do. In fact, that's the only thing we should do. Husbands, love your wife with sacrificial love and take responsibility for the glory of Christ in your marriage. Wives, respect your husband and honor Christ through the building him up as a spiritual leader of your home. And I would encourage every married couple here to read the insert, 12 Habits That Lead to Divorce, and evaluate yourself by it. Number three, if you are married, considering divorce, contemplating, thinking about it, even pursuing it, remember the power of the gospel. I encourage you to stop and ask first if you have biblical grounds for divorce. And if you don't, I urge you to remain married by seeking reconciliation with your spouse and restoration of your marriage that is possible through the power of the gospel. And I would encourage you also to read the insert, 10 Common but Illegitimate Reasons to Divorce. And then last of all, which I forgot to include in your notes and on the screen, if you are divorced, and whether you're Remarried or unmarried, here's my last exhortation. is for you to rest in the grace of the gospel. Know that your divorce, whether it was for biblical reasons or unbiblical reasons, know that that divorce does not cancel out your salvation, nor does it mean God can't use you for ministry. The gospel really does make a difference, amen? It makes a difference in our lives, and it makes a difference in our marriages. As Christ followers, we need to bow the knee and humble the heart to submit ourselves to God's will for our lives and marriages. Let's pray. Lord, oh Heavenly Father, we confess to you that these are hard truths and we wrestle with them and we seek to apply them in our own lives and marriages and we ask for your grace 
Oh, Lord, help us to live in joyful obedience to your word as it relates to singleness in marriage. We are sinful and selfish people who desperately need the gospel to radically change our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me encourage you as we prepare for offering here. Man, if you're struggling in any way, if you've got questions about anything we've talked about today, contact me. Contact Pastor Chris. We're more than happy to sit down with you, try to lead you through some of these issues. This has not been the easiest message to preach, and I know it hasn't been the easiest to hear, and we all need the grace of God to apply it. And we're in this journey together. I do encourage you, though, to come next Sunday as we wrap up this series and we talk about singleness and how we can maximize it for the kingdom of God. All right, let's receive our morning offering, and then we'll be dismissed.